0: Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Does anybody know what happened on November 5th of 1605? Guy Fawkes Day. Day. Yeah. The gunpowder treason. Remember, remember, the 5th of of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Now, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 7? You might be wondering. Well, Guy Fawkes Day is a celebration that they have in Great Britain that commemorates a plot, uh, the, the, the foiling of a plot by Roman Catholics to assassinate the Protestant King of England and set a Scottish Catholic king on the throne in his place. Now, the text that we are looking at today is a text that is abused by Roman Catholics. I, see, I had to connect it somehow. <laughs> You know, you can't just, you can't just have a, a lesson on Guy Fox Day and not try and introduce, at least poorly, you know, make a poor attempt to introduce using Guy Fox Day. But this text is abused by Roman Catholics in support of celibacy as a more virtuous way of life than matrimony. At the Council of Trent, which was Rome's response to the Reformation, their 10th canon of the 24th session stated, if anyone saith that the marriage state is to be placed above the state of virginity or of celibacy, and that is not better and more blessed to remain in virginity or in celibacy than to be united in matrimony, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. If you don't think it's better to be celibate or to remain in virginity than to be married, you're to be cursed. And that's what the Roman Catholics say. And they've never recanted the Council of Trent. So of all the errors that have been perpetuated by the Catholic Church, the issues that we're dealing with today are part of them. Now, this is part of our Reformation heritage. We sang today about a mighty fortress is our God, celebrating the the great truths of the Reformation. But it's not just justification by faith that we enjoy and celebrate, it's the recovery of of all these other great and wondrous truths. And in case you're wondering whether the Roman Catholic Church is the only group out there that has a poor view of marriage and celibacy, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church is just as bad. One of the saints that they venerate, maybe even more than one, but one that I know about is a guy who left his wife to go and be a monk. And they celebrate that. That's preposterous. And it's sinful, as we'll see today. Now, This idea comes partly from the influence of ancient philosophy on the Christian tradition and partly from affirmations that we see in Scripture, such as those we see from Paul in this chapter, but they're poorly understood and poorly used. In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, Paul answers the Corinthian church's questions about celibacy, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And if we could summarize Paul's teaching in these verses… We could say that Paul teaches me you actually use the slide that I made. Paul teaches that we should pursue sexual purity in every marital state and that we should pursue marriages that glorify God even when the other spouse is an unbeliever. Paul develops his teaching in four sets of instructions. His first instructions concern sexual intimacy in marriage, in verses 1 to 6, sexual intimacy in marriage. Now he writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. So Paul begins by recognizing that the the Corinthians had written a letter to him. We see that, you know, he says, concerning the things about which you wrote. They had sent him uh, a letter asking specific questions about the Christian life. And we don't don't have a copy of that letter. We have to sort of infer what their questions were. And at times that can make it a little bit difficult uh, because sometimes it's unclear whether Paul is quoting something the the Corinthians had said or whether he's making a statement in response to something they had said. And the difficulty for us is, is that they, they knew what the Corinthian questions were, and we don't. And we have to make those inferences. But Paul begins by affirming that celibacy itself is a moral good. And this is where all of those errors that I just mentioned uh, come from, is that Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the idea of a man touching a woman is a euphemism. You know, it's a, it's a figure of speech. It, it points to sexual relations. And when you look at it in, in other places uh, in Greek literature, it's always involving passions. But it, it applies to, this applies to women as well, not only to men. It's just a, a way of expressing it. And so opening with this clear euphemism, you know, it's, it's transparent what Paul is talking about, it sets the context for the rest of these verses, 1 through 16, And so while there may be implications and applications for other areas of married or celibate life, this text that we're looking at has to do primarily with sexual relations between a husband and wife. Now, some take this as a quotation of a statement made by the Corinthians that Paul is denying. They like to uh, say that Paul is somehow putting quotes around it. The problem is that there's no indication in the text that he's doing that. You know, he's not saying, "You said this," Na, da da da." Uh, it, it seems like rather that this is um, something that Paul is affirming. But as we consider like, whether this is something that Paul could be saying himself, why might Paul make this statement? And what other biblical evidence could we point to for confirmation that what Paul says here is a true statement? That's a question that you can answer. It's not rhetorical. Yes, right, but what's one clear example? Jesus, wasn't married. Jesus. Jesus. Our Lord was not married. And if our Lord was never married, it means that complete abstinence from sexual intimacy is a moral good. Other prophets appear to have never married, such as Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist, and others. But if it's true that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, how is it also true that it is not good for man to be alone? Look at Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now in context, the man was the only creature like himself. Remember, God had brought him all the creatures, and he was naming them, and there was not one that was found that was like him. He had no true companion. Uh, Only the animals he was set over as their Lord. He was given reign and authority over the earth, over these creatures. But he had no true companion. It's not good for man to be absolutely alone. And it would not have been good for man not to procreate. I mean, that was part of God's intention and design for creation, was for man to be fruitful and multiply. And so it, it was not good for man to be alone. So God created a woman to help him. And to be a suitable companion for him. Now, just because this is generally true does not mean that there are no cases in which it's also true that it's morally good for a man to remain single or a person to remain single. And so, Paul also affirms in the following verses, even though he's just said celibacy itself is a moral good, he also affirms, as we see in his argument, that marital intimacy is a moral good. They're both moral goods. And he begins in verse 2 by pointing out that marital intimacy deters sexual immorality. And so this is not a situation that Adam and Eve would have had to deal with, right? I mean, sin had not entered into the world whenever God created them for one another. But now, in the, under a fallen creation, you know, we have to consider this practical uh, reality that marital intimacy deters sexual immorality. Paul says in verse 2, but because of immoralities. The word immoralities is, in Greek, is porneas. It's the same word that uh, we get the word pornography from. Uh, and if you're familiar with Grimm's law of language change, you can probably also hear the, the root of fornication. And that's the idea, is sexual immoralities, fornications, because of these things. Now, does Paul mean that the entire purpose for the existence of marriage is to be a deterrent against sexual immorality? I don't think so, because marriage was created and designed and given before sexual immorality ever existed. It's not the only reason that marriage exists, but it's a strong one. Rather, Paul is training the Corinthians to think rightly about marital intimacy because Understanding God's design for marital intimacy is a great deterrent against sexual immorality. That's why he can preface these verses about sexual intimacy in marriage with the phrase, because of sexual immoralities. And he goes on to say that marital intimacy is an obligation. Actually, I jumped the gun on that. Uh, Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. This is still part of marital intimacy deters sexual immorality. In the context of the rest of the chapter, Paul is speaking here to people who are already married when he says, each man and each woman. Now, he's not saying each man absolutely or each woman absolutely because later on, he speaks to unmarried people and says, hey, it would be good if you can remain single. It'd be good if you can remain unmarried. And so, it wouldn't make any sense for him to say, you know, each man is to have his own wife and mean that every single person is supposed to get married. And so, it can't mean that. The idea of having uh, can be a bit misleading when he says each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Because when we, when we come across this verse for the first time, we tend to think, well, he's, he's, what he really means is each man must marry a wife and each woman must marry a husband. You know, he's… he's talking about we must get married. But that isn't exactly what the text says. And it doesn't make sense in in light of Paul's other instructions. Most likely, Paul is expressing the idea of Genesis 2.24 in different language. Genesis 2.24 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul is not going for poetry here. And so he's highlighting this key word, which is joined. And the Hebrew word expresses the idea of holding firmly to something. Uh, It can be like an inheritance or another person. So in in Numbers, when uh, the the Israelites are being given commandments about their inheritance, they're supposed to hold to their inheritance and not give it up to somebody else. The son of Ahab in 2 Kings, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. That's the same word. He clung to those sins. He didn't let them go. He didn't walk away from them. Ruth 1.14, Ruth clung to Naomi. She wouldn't leave her. She wouldn't depart from her. Those are the ideas that Paul is, is communicating in verse 2. In this context, it's most likely that Paul is, is talking about being intentional with your sexual intimacy in marriage and not looking for personal gratification elsewhere. If you're married, you need to be intentional about making sure that you are satisfying the needs of your spouse, taking the focus off of yourself and putting your focus on your spouse, which leads Paul to his next statement in verse 3 that marital intimacy is an obligation. He says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, we could take this as an abstract principle that could apply in other areas of married life. But in the context of sexual intimacy, this can only refer to the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. You have responsibilities to one another. You have obligations to one another that you are called to fulfill. The idea that the husband is under obligation to the wife is not a universally embraced concept. If you look at other cultures, non-Christian cultures, uh, it's clear that they have a warped view of the responsibilities between men and women in marriage. But Paul makes it clear right here that both the husband and wife hold each other under obligation. The husband has a responsibility to his wife, and the wife has a responsibility to her husband. A husband has an obligation of sexual intimacy to his wife, and he must fulfill that obligation. Likewise, the wife has an obligation of sexual intimacy to her husband, and she must fulfill that obligation. On the heels of this mandate to be intentional about sexual intimacy, this statement implies that you're communicating with one another about these things, about your mutual desires and expectations in your marriage. But it also points forward to Paul's next statement, that marital intimacy is is not about you. It's, he says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is essentially stating, less poetically, something that we've heard before. Song of Solomon 6.3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. You belong to one another as husband and wife. The implication here is that your body is not for your own personal service and gratification. You are not free to do with what you, you're you're not free to do what you want with your body for gratification. And while it's always tenuous to make a claim based on what the text does not say, I think the fact that Paul says nothing about self-gratification as a remedy for sexual immorality reveals that. Self-gratification of your sexual desires is not an option. It's not something that Paul leaves on the table. Doing that is an act of sexual immorality. And, Paul says in the next verses, marital intimacy should only rarely be interrupted. He says, "'Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, "'so that you may devote yourselves to prayer,' And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, apparently there were some in the Corinthian church that were thinking that it was somehow better to remain celibate, even if they were already married. And Paul is telling them, stop depriving one another. Even though this is the same church that had the whole problem back in chapter 5 with not understanding that incest is not okay. They They were all over the place. They, they had things all out of whack, all warped. And you can see, even, even in these two very different problems, they were factious. They were divided on so many issues. And so Paul has to remind them first to be united in the faith, and then deal with separate issues. But he says, stop depriving one another. This word for depriving is the same word that we saw in the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 8, where Paul accuses them of defrauding one another if you have this obligation to your spouse and you are not fulfilling that obligation you're defrauding your spouse you're robbing them of what's owed them that's the language that paul is using but then with the word accept, you know paul is not you know he's he's not being too rigid with this he is giving one clear example of a case in which you might withhold sexual intimacy from one another it's an exception And he says it's by agreement. He uses the same term here that we have, uh, that our word symphony comes from. There is perfect harmony and accord between the husband and wife in their decision to set aside sexual intimacy for a time. And notice that it's for a time, it's not indefinitely, it's not for an undetermined amount of time, it's a specific. Agreed upon duration of time. There is a terminus, there is an end point or end condition to your agreed upon cessation of sexual intimacy. And what's the reason that he gives? It's so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There's a legitimate reason involved. And Paul gives the specific act of praying, but I think there's an underlying principle here that could apply to other cases as well. Here, Paul envisions this married couple devoting a specific time to prayer during the time that they might otherwise, also, otherwise be involved in sexual intimacy, but he may be giving this specific scenario because the Corinthians were under the impression that celibacy was spiritually superior to marital intimacy. I mean, we can also think of potential medical reasons why, you know, there might have to be uh, a cessation of sexual intimacy for a, a season Uh, There are also sometimes extenuating circumstances. You know, in in World War II, for example, a lot of soldiers had to go away to war. That was a cessation of sexual intimacy for a season. But there was an end point to it. When the husbands returned, we had the baby boom. And so, Paul is not being too rigid with this. There are legitimate cases where there might be exceptions, where there is an agreement between the husband and wife, but he's import, he makes the important statement that they are to come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is a real concern for, pe- for couples who are deprived from marital intimacy for an extended period of time that they may begin to exhaust an inordinate amount of time and energy or mental energy on the subject of sexual intimacy. They may fixate on it, and that can lead to sin. And that is what Paul wants married couples to deter. But he wants to be clear that this is a concession, not a command. He says in the next verse, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Now, I am in the minority. So you can take this for what what you will. I admit that I am in the minority in grouping this verse with the first five and beginning a new section at verse 7. Verse 7. But as I've read the text and pondered it over and over, uh, this seems to make the most sense of Paul's argument here and in the following verses. And so I want to make that clear, make that out, put that out there right up front. There's, there's a lot of debate about which direction Paul is pointing to when he says this. So he says, but this I say by way of concession. And Which way is he pointing? Is he pointing to what he just said or what he's about to say? And as I've read it over and over again and looked at these words, it seems that he's pointing back to verse 5. And it's helpful when you're looking at this to consider the word concession, because Paul's meaning of this, the word this, seems to hinge on how he intends the word concession. Now, the word for concession is related to the Greek word for knowledge, and it speaks of what is excusable or under exception, it implies understanding someone's situation and it also begins the same way as as the word for agreement that we saw in the previous verse and so paul seems to be playing with these with these words here when we look at the verses around verse 6 there is one statement nearby that is a clear exception clause located in verse 5 where Paul says, "Except by agreement for a time. And so that's what I think Paul is talking about when he says, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. He's talking about the exception that he just gave, the concession that he just made. And so it doesn't make any sense to say that he's talking about what he's about to say. Also, there's a a complete lack of any indicator that he's talking about what he's about to be saying when he says this. And usually whenever he's using this, the word this, to say that he's talking about what he's about to say, there is some kind of an indicator. So, married couples are under no mandate to take a break from sexual intimacy in order to devote time to prayer. And Paul is making that clear. He's saying there may be exceptions to the rule, but it's not a mandate. It's not something you have to do. This is a concession or exception that Paul is making, but he doesn't want them to mistake it for a command. Does that make sense? Some nods? Okay, all right, good. Now, you know, whenever you, whenever you do something like that, you, you go against, you know, the grain of what a lot of people are saying, you know, you just got to make sure that people are tracking with you and you're not just, you know, lost in your own mind. So these six verses really set the stage for what Paul discusses in the following verses and in the rest of the chapter. Paul has a high view of marriage. I hope you see that. And included in that high view of marriage is a high view of sexual intimacy. God's design and intention for marriage is that couples enjoy the gift of sexual intimacy. And a biblical practice of sexual intimacy in marriage is a strong deterrent against sexual immorality, as Paul makes clear. And after teaching the Corinthians the right way to think about sexual intimacy and in marriage, he then gives instruction on celibacy and remarriage. He says, in verse, beginning in verse 7 through verse 9, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so he begins by affirming that celibacy is commendable. So he said before that celibacy itself is a moral good. And now he's saying celibacy is commendable. And he's perfectly balanced, right? I mean, so far, you know, he's not giving you the impression that one is better than the other. He's perfectly balanced. Celibacy is good. Marriage is good. Celibacy is commendable. After speaking so strongly and highly of marital intimacy, Paul now exhorts those who are able to remain celibate. Paul speaks of himself as someone he wishes for others to pattern their lives upon. In the context of matrimony, he's speaking about his own ability to persevere in singleness. Now, Paul, um, you know, we have no information about Paul's marriage status, whether he was never married, whether he was a widower, or whether his unbelieving wife left him. And there's been a lot of speculation about Paul's marital status, partly because of the things that he says right here. And so, here's what we do know. Paul was a strict Pharisee, and we see that in Acts whenever he's giving his testimony. We see that in Philippians 3.5. And he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. You know, people say, some people claim that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, some people just say that he may have been. If he was, a requirement to be on the Sanhedrin was that you be married. And so that's a strong indicator that Paul very well could have been married. But the text never says for sure that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But we do see in the early chapters of Acts that he did have some significant influence. He did have some weight with the Sanhedrin. He was able to get letters that would give him the authority to ravage the churches. We also know from Acts that Paul was a young man at the time of his conversion. Uh, you see this in Acts chapter, se- uh, chapter 7, verse 58, at the death of, of, of Stephen. As it talks about Saul as a young man. And the fact that he was a young man casts doubt on on the idea that he was married since men were often older when they married. So these ideas, the lack of clarity on him being a member of the Sanhedrin and the fact that he was a young man lead me to conclude that Paul was never married. But I'm not dogmatic about that. If you think for some reason that Paul was married or he probably was married, congratulations. (laughs) Now, Paul recognizes that singleness is not everyone's gift. For whatever reason, Paul had no wife. We know that. But he recognized that his ability to remain single and still function well, still still function to the glory of God, was a gift from God. He calls it a charisma, which is the same word that he uses later to speak of spiritual gifts. We need to remember that marriage is a gift, right? He says that as well. But so also is singleness, you know the vast majority of people in the church that i at least that i know are married but there are a lot of single people as well and we need to recognize that singleness is just as much a gift as marriage is you know we've got this tendency of you know uh, making single people feel uncomfortable saying weird things about singleness like you know there's a, there's the right person is out there for you it's like well you know maybe god's given them the gift of singleness and those comments that you make are not necessarily helpful. You know, for every pot, there's a lid. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it, thankfully, I got married young, so people didn't really say that to me. Um, so, um, but if you know single people, uh, don't be weird about it, you know? <laughs> don't, don't say awkward things to them and make them feel, uh, you know, weird about their singleness recognize that singleness is a gift and if god has given them the gift of singleness uh, rejoice in their giftedness you know they can do things as single people that as a married person you might not be able to do you know they don't have to be encumbered with you know worrying about what's going to happen to my wife if i go and you know do this or do that you know especially in the in the early church you know when people were being martyred for their faith you know if you were married you had to really think about, you know, what's going to happen to my family if, I'm, if I die, if I'm put to death. But if you're single, you don't have to worry about that. You're, you know, fun and fancy free, I guess. Like, you can, you can go to the stake happily. Maybe, maybe not happily. But. Everybody has a mother. Everybody has a mother. That's right. That's right. Everybody has a mother. Yep. That's true. That's true. you got to think about that. That's right. So, um, but anyway, that's the point, is that we need to remember that marriage is a gift, but so is singleness. Paul emphasizes that. But he also says it is good to remain single. Celibacy and marriage are both gifts, um, but it is good to remain single. He says in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I Now, the word unmarried, you know, when we read that, we don't really see uh, some of the ways that that gets used throughout uh, the chapter. Uh, In other places, it really seems to mean no longer married when you look at it throughout chapter 7, like in verse 11 or verse 34. Here, I, I think it is kind of a more general term that Paul is using. He's not necessarily talking about divorced people. Um, or people that, you know, have never been married at all. But it's just generally, you know, unmarried. And these are people, men and women, not women only, since it's a masculine noun, um, some of whom were married but now are not. Um, And they may be widowers, uh, because there's not a Greek word for widower. There's just the the feminine form, widow. Uh, Well, there is a Greek word for widower, But you almost never use it, and it's always metaphorical. So if you're going to talk about somebody whose wife has died, you just call them unmarried in Greek. Um, And so it's most likely that Paul is talking about uh, just generally people that are unmarried, people that are for whatever reason. And Paul views himself as one of these who is not married, but we have no further details. But he says it's a moral good to remain single. There's no sin in not pursuing a spouse. Like, if you're single, you don't have to get married. Like, nobody ought to be pressuring you to get married, contrary to what some might think. But he does make sure and tell them that it is better to remarry or to marry than to be inflamed with passion. If you lack self-control, don't piddle around trying to figure out how to learn self-control before taking some radical measures in your life to eliminate opportunities for exercising your lack of self-control. And notice, again, that self-gratification is not an option that Paul gives. Paul doesn't tell them to, to deal with their desires like Diogenes the Cynic. Any sexual activity that takes place outside the context of marriage is sexual immorality. Now, after covering the Corinthian church's questions on celibacy and sexual intimacy in marriage and remarriage for those who are no longer married, or potentially marriage for those who have never been married, um, Paul now gives instruction on divorce between believers or the possibility of divorce between believers. He says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, Paul says, but to the married. And when he says that, he addresses those who are married and both are believers or members of the church. Now, he never addresses himself to unbelievers in his epistles. Only believers. So he is speaking here to married couples in the church. And afterward, he addresses himself to spouses of unbelievers. He doesn't even talk about the unbelieving spouses. He doesn't speak to them. And he also says, not I, but the Lord. And, you know, he, this is his way of saying, I'm pulling directly from what Christ taught. You know, if you look in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount or Matthew chapter 19, Christ has direct teaching on marriage and divorce. So this is Paul's way of indicating that he's drawing upon Christ's instructions. But this does not imply that he thinks less of his own instructions. It implies that the Corinthians were already familiar with this teaching and that Paul was just reminding them of what they already knew. He says the wife should not leave her husband. Now, this, is, this is the language of divorce. Uh, the result, as we see in the next verse, is that she must remain unmarried. If leaving your spouse causes you to be unmarried... You just got divorced. Under normal circumstances, Paul says, the wife must not leave her husband. But Paul recognizes there are exceptions. And we would recognize that the only legitimate reason for divorce is if there are biblical grounds. So if a believing woman does not leave, does leave her believing husband, she has only two options that Paul lays out. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And Paul doesn't get into all the hypothetical uh, scenarios that we can come up with. You know, oh, what if you know, she thinks her husband is dead and she falls in love with another guy? I mean, that's the plot for Casablanca, right? I mean, Paul doesn't get into all that. He cuts through all that and says, these are the two options. If she divorces her husband, this is, by the way, this is the, the same applies for men. If you get, if you get divorced... You are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Those are the only two options. He addresses wives and husbands equally and says the same principles apply. You should not get a divorce. You should not. But if you get a divorce, assuming you have biblical grounds, either remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's what he says. Now it's been said that Greco-Roman marriage certificates were worded as though they expected the marriage to end in divorce, not death. Now think about that. I mean, that's the worldview that the that the Corinthian Christians are familiar with—a world in which you get married, and yeah, that may be like a five or a seven or a ten-year deal, and then you know, you get divorced and you know find somebody else. You know, that's that's what they're familiar with. And then Paul is coming along, and I'm sure the other teachers were saying this as well. Paul's not unique in this. But he says, don't get divorced. This isn't the Christian thing to do. Divorce is not what Christians do. Marriage is sacred. This would have been a radical command for new believers to wrap their heads around. But marriage is a serious undertaking and not to be trifled with. And the world has such a low view of marriage. I mean, it was true in that day. And it's true today as well. I mean, Chelsea and I were both children from broken homes. My best friends in high school were were children from broken homes. Many of the people we went to high school with have been married and divorced already. You know, you look out on social media and it's just... It's a miserable world out there. They just don't get it. (laughs) And I find it ironic. I knew this was true about Arkansas, but it's true of Texas as well. As conservative as Texas is, despite the fact that it's in the heart of the Bible belt, Texas is one of the few states that allows for true, no-fault divorce. I pulled this from a website called TexasLawHelp.org. I wasn't looking for help, by the way. It says, Texas is a no-fault divorce state, meaning a divorce can be granted even if your spouse doesn't agree. For a no-fault divorce, your divorce lawsuit must, must allege that there is a conflict of personalities and there is no reasonable expectation of getting back together. You do not need to go into any details of the breakup. That's how easy it is. In the world's eyes, for a marriage to be dissolved... In Arkansas, you used to be able to read the newspaper and see the, uh, the divorce announcements. You know, this, this and this couple you know, got a divorce. And what's the cause? Irreconcilable differences. There are no irreconcilable differences. You can all probably cite examples of your own that you know of or have witnessed firsthand. The world has no respect for God's design for marriage. But many Christians have bought into the world's ideas about marriage until the statistics for Christians and non Christians look no different. And if you're sitting here today and you've begun to think like the world about marriage and divorce, you need to let Paul give you a wake up call. Marriage is serious business, divorce is off limits. Divorce is either a non-option or a drastic measure that you take to show your sinning spouse the gravity and severity of his or her sin. And reconciliation is the end goal. But Paul doesn't just speak to believers who are married. He also speaks to Christians who are married to unbelievers. Paul has given instruction on divorce between believers, but in our final Paragraph, he gives instruction on divorce in mixed marriages in verses 12 to 16. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's instruction is clear. Do not divorce the unbeliever. Paul addresses those who are married to unbelievers, and he says, I say, not the Lord. Now we saw earlier that Paul was drawing directly on the teaching of Christ, but here he's saying that Christ has not taught on this subject directly. That's all he means by this. he's, He's saying, I'm not quoting from what Christ said. Paul's words are just as authoritative as Christ's because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is just as much scripture as what we have in the Gospels. The same principle applies to Christian wives of unbelieving husbands. They're not to get a divorce. Now, it's important to remember that your expectations of an unbeliever ought to be radically different from your expectations of a believer. A believer ought to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, but an unbeliever will be characterized by the deeds of the flesh. And Paul writes in Galatians 5.19 and in the following verses, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are? And what's the first one he says? Does anybody know? Immorality. And you know what word that is? Sexual immorality. Pornea. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 2 of this chapter. If you ha- are married to an unbeliever, it should not be, on, be beyond your imagination that your unbelieving spouse will be guilty of pornea. Pornea. If your goal is to see that person saved, you will not pursue divorce at the first signs of trouble, even if the unbeliever is guilty of sexual immorality. Adultery is grounds for divorce. Christ makes that clear. But it does not mean that you are commanded to divorce. Nowhere are we commanded to divorce. The only biblical grounds for divorce that we are given our adultery. And as Paul indicates a couple verses later, abandonment. But Paul makes it clear that the unbeliever has an advantage by being married to a believer. And this is similar to the advantage that the Jew had by uh, being a Jew. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter three, sorry, I didn't have this in my notes, but I think it's, I think it's helpful. Yeah, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He's talked about how both the the Jews and the Gentiles are are guilty. They're both condemned. He said, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? And so I'm drawing an analogy here. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you are married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever has specific advantages, namely but they have somebody in their life who's evangelizing them constantly through their words and their deeds. He says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, sanctification is not salvation. They're not equal. You can be related by marriage, but you can't be saved by marriage. To sanctify something is to set it apart. In this case, the presence of one believing spouse or parent sets the entire household apart from the world. How many Christians in the home does it take to make a Christian home? One. There's a Christian influence in the home. Now, the difficulty... is for the Corinthians, is, is the idea of consecration and defilement. You know, there were some of them that may have been afraid that by being married to this unbeliever, they were being defiled somehow. I mean, think about it. If your spouse is a pagan, they're an idolater, and you're married to them, you know, you may be influenced, you know, you may be corrupted in some sense. That's what these Corinthians were thinking. I mean, when De- Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire, their deed was not sanctified, by the holy instruments and sacred space. Rather, they were consumed with fire for their act of defilement. But Paul indicates that it's the opposite in this case. Your godly presence in the home will have an impact. It will make a difference. John Calvin put it this way. The godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. If you are married to a believer with children, your children are automatically a part of your personal evangelism project because you are called to instruct them in the truths of God's word. If you're a believer married to an unbeliever, your spouse is automatically part of your personal evangelism project because you will be constantly demonstrating and communicating gospel truths to your spouse. Your spouse and your children are set apart as those who will have the gospel communicated to them faithfully and repeatedly by you. But Paul, he's got such a pastor's heart. He says the abandoned believer is not enslaved. If you're married to an unbeliever and they reject you because of your faith, you're not under bondage. He says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And this is something of a parenthetical to Paul's point because it it doesn't really flow with what he's been saying, but he wants to include this important detail. If your unbelieving spouse chooses to abandon you because of your faith, you're you're under no bondage. You're not enslaved to this person. The command is to let your spouse depart if he or she wants to depart. According to Paul's language here, if your unbelieving spouse abandons you because of your faith, you, you are free to remarry. Now, whether or not you should remarry, all things considered, is a different matter. And You should consider why you want to remarry and whether remarrying will help you serve the Lord with greater faithfulness. As Paul indicates earlier, But he says God has called us to peace. J. Adams writes, God wants no loose ends. There must be reconciliation or divorce, a resolution of difficulties one way or another. He has called you to peace. Peace means a final resolution of the matter. If your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, don't fight it. Uh, don't, Don't try and make a fuss about it. That's what Paul is saying here. Pursue peace. Don't hold on to the hope of evangelizing your unbelieving spouse and refuse the divorce. You'll only create more problems in the long run, and you'll not have the peace to which God has called you. But Paul reminds them as well, you do not know if your unbelieving spouse will be saved. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Your goal as a believing spouse of an unbeliever is to not stir up strife in the home, And God has called us to peace, not strife, not chaos, not disorder. Ultimately, although your calling is to evangelize your unbelieving spouse, the reality is that you have no guarantees. You know, you can hope for this because you don't know whether they will be saved or not through your evangelism. But you ultimately have to trust in God's sovereignty in this matter. Now, be faithful to keep praying and evangelizing, trusting in the Lord to work salvation in the heart of your unbelieving spouse if he wills it. Well, Paul has dealt with some pretty heavy stuff and we're almost out of time. So, overturning the plot of the Catholics against the Protestant King of England did not ultimately end confusion about sexual intimacy and marriage. As we've seen, Paul's instruction to the Corinthian Christians is heavy. And like so many of the principles by which Christians live, The world cannot understand them. If you don't get what Paul is saying here, there's a real possibility that you may not be truly converted. If you can't understand a biblical picture of marriage, consider whether your mind has been truly renewed by the gospel. If you've not trusted in Christ as the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man, you cannot truly understand these principles. And if you are in Christ, put these principles into practice. And just, uh, I had some applications here. I'll leave them on the screen, and you can write them down afterward. But I'll close in prayer, and then we can be... All right. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given. You have given the gift of celibacy to some and marriage to others. And you have given clear instruction in your word about how we should faithfully live out both of those things, both of those gifts. Lord, I pray that for those of those in this room who are single, that they would pursue their singleness uh, with faithfulness, and for those who are married, that they would pursue their marriage with faithfulness, and that they would uh, s- seek to live out these principles and apply them in their daily lives. And Father, ultimately, not just so that we can uh, live happy lives or um, just enjoy prosperity. But because we are called to reflect the person and work of Christ, and we are called as Christians to be holy and to live lives that are pure. And so, Father, I pray that we would pursue purity in all areas. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.